This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What I'm, what I'm actually going to talk about tonight is, in a very simple way, um, most of what we do at, at San Diego State in a, a Viz Center is, is how do you actually take a narrative or something that you might call a story and, and make it something that somebody can go do something with in, in terms of real action? So instead of just saying something about it, um, how do you actually help somebody make a decision that actually helps other people? And the point behind it in many ways is how do we actually train students and educate students? And, and so all of this is done as things that I do, but, but the reason I'm doing is we have, as, as Tom said, um, 67 students in actually just this year, so we have about 150 graduate students in the program. Um, and as they're doing it, they're, they're learning how to do things. They're learning how to to address really difficult problems, but instead of just how do I do it and, and politically is you, you could parse things that way, but oftentimes say if you're trying to save somebody's life, what politics is the EMT? That's, and you're going, you don't really care one whit. What you, know, you care about are they going to save your life? And one of the things that we have really found is that by, by focusing what we're doing on, on trying to, in a sense, mentor to show people how they could actually make an impact in the world. One of the most powerful ways of doing that is not them listening to me or the other faculty members say, this is what you should do. It's getting them involved in a global disaster. It's having them save the lives of people. And then that experience, as they have saved lives, that changes their life. So their life has not been changed by us. It's been changed by the experience of they have gone and done things that they thought were completely impossible. Um, so so that what I'm going to show is, in a sense, is a different perspective. And that different perspective, as you would look at um, this from the space station, is, is looking down on L.A., Phoenix, uh, Tijuana, San Diego. And, and you can see the border doesn't jump out at you. You actually can see it in Mexicali. But, but when you actually look at that perspective... The space station is flying all over the world. You see the, the whole world in a whole host of ways, and day and night. Um, the perspective of as, as we are connected and, and not connected in different kinds of ways, um, that, that perspective is something that most of us don't look at every day. We, we look at perspective from the newspaper or from uh, what's online. But, but the perspective of the world now is imaged every single day, the entire Earth, at at least six meters or below resolution by Planet.labs. Um, so they now have the most satellites up except for the U.S. and Russia. And now it's a private company in San, Fr uh, San Francisco. And you're going, so we, have a, we have awareness and access in a, in a profound way, but what do we do with it? How do we train students to do something? So as an example, most of you probably spent yesterday um, pondering what happened seven years ago. So since we're being recorded, I won't, um, I won't stay like I would do in a normal class. Um, but in a normal class, I would go, bam, for a really simple reason, that then you would jump. That's what happened when this earthquake took place on April 4th, 2010. So seven years, one day ago. It wasn't just one earthquake. It was bam, bam, bam. Thousands of earthquakes took place over a whole series of days. And what took place, the border... Um, as you can see from the little inset, the border had no impact on, in a, in a sense, um, there were earthquakes north of it, south of it. Um, the, the water infrastructure broke on both sides. The roads broke on both sides. 
Uh, Border Patrol there was involved in how do we save lives? How do you focus on this people on the south side? Where, and, and some of the very first people to be there to take pictures were Homeland Security graduate students. And, and they were there taking pictures for a really simple reason. They were already there on a, on a field trip working with the, um, the state police in, in Baja, California. So as they were there, many of the pictures for this is what's there. Here's the situation. Here's the risk. This is what you can do came from students in the right place at the right time and also using this funny thing back seven years ago called social media. This took place over the weekend. So some of you are following this as well. Another major disaster, Columbia. This is one small town. Also um, something that's at night. Um, in the Mexicali earthquake, only two people died. Um, when, when the devastation took place, 30,000 people lost their house. Uh, but we don't think about that. But in this thing, uh, more than 200 have already died. 200 or more at least are missing. Um, this uh, landslide. Um, uh, full of mud, um, came roaring down out of the mountains where they hadn't expect, you know, they don't have much rain there. So it's like the world is changing. So when it changed, when you actually look at those young soldiers that were doing it, they're now doing things that seven years ago would never have been possible. Most of them are now mapping what's there by taking a phone, a picture, putting it on pieces of paper, mapping where they've been, using open source software that then is connected around the world. And those are things that our students are involved in. Um, as well as one of our students had predicted that this landslide would take place. And you just look at it and going, you couldn't get governments together to say these people, but now that she looks at it, um, this is, picture is intentionally fuzzy uh, for a reason that it's a fuzzy question. Um, and and the, this is a, a picture from the video of looking at a wall that we happen to live in San Diego, and in San Diego we have an extraordinary opportunity that's sort of what it's about. How can you actually take something that's one narrative and help train students to say there are other answers in this that can be a blessing across the board in a host of ways? And, and you might call this a disaster in one sense. How do you actually do something? Not just talk about it. How do you actually do something? And how do you invent things like with the Internet of Things to actually go do something that's never been done before? So as an example, fences often are actually way better because you can see through them. You can do all sorts of things. But when you, when you actually look at that, um, so just as a simple example, as you look at this, this is something that's in all of our lives now. The Union Tribune just published about 20 different versions of what might be there. And you just look at it and you're going, you know, there is so much more that we could do in a, such a powerful way that's using technology. And then it's using the other thing that this group has looked at is ethics. How can you actually use this as something that builds up countries in an absolutely profound way? So most of that is actually done by collaboration. So you can kind of read this. But the point of this really is that if you can collaborate with people, and so we, Homeland Security, as a graduate program, we collaborate enormously with Baja California, with Mexico. So I'm in Mexico. I cross the border at least twice a week. Um, I teach at UABC with a San Diego State class that's now a formal class. I take 25 students across. I don't bring 25 back because they're figuring out that they can stay down there and... Um, make, making friends, um, going to very nice restaurants, doing things, and then they come back by themselves. But, but the collaboration of how do you do that in an enormous way? Is the question ever asked, how do we partner with Mexico to build something that's really beneficial? To, so you can say how we can use this as a teaching tool for students, that this could profoundly help 
our future for a long ways by thinking in a different way. And this technology ethics join is actually a really powerful, uh, so as a simple example, to think about this. So here's a wind energy map of, of North America, of, of, of the U.S. And you can see as we would make that map, we make that map of the U.S. because we are the U.S. and that's who published it. So as an example of collaboration, there is no collaboration. But here's the map that made by the same group, now of Baja California. You can see the dark blue, um, purplish, um, is where you cross over the cliffs from the top of the mountains down to the, to the desert. So that's basically as if I took this podium and just tilted it. So Baja California is just a big tilted slab. You go up to the top and it fall, because there's a great big fault there, and then there's a fault offshore. So where it falls off to the desert, that huge topographic relief ends up being one of the highest energy potential in all of North America. So the wind is there every day. So if the wind is there, what do we do with the wind? One Dubai company just recently put $4 billion into it. And you can sort of think the normal context is there's the money to make the wind energy, and then we have to make another Sunrise Power Link, $1.4 billion, 10 years, to get it to San Diego, LA. Well, think about it in a different way. Think about it, don't even bring it anywhere. So you make the power there, but then you use the power there. And one of the ways that you could use the power is make a Google data farm, or a Microsoft data farm, or a China data farm. That what you're doing is you're using the energy in the place that you're generating. And then what you're exporting is not the energy, you're exporting it on fiber optics. So what you're sending is light. And so light goes around the world. It goes about, takes about one second to go all the way around the world. And so you can go, oh, if you go to the place where the energy is, like going to Niagara Falls and seeing that there's water flowing, if you make, so why don't you put you know, uh, things there to, to actually use that energy? So this concept of look at the energy on the border, it's staggering. How do we actually use the wall as, a, as a, just an example to do things? So as, as that kind of a, an example, um, there is now the fiber optic network for Mexico. Um, and you can see one of the few places it crosses um, as fiber is San Diego. So the fiber crosses here. Um, the, the, on the lower left, the, the image is uh, from a group that UCSD is very deeply a leadership through, through Larry Smarr. Um, and Tom DeFonte is the Global AMD Information Facility, that actually looking at fiber around the world becomes a way that the, the enormous impact that that has on the world. You can go, there is a power generator, a place to put that here, and then in a very powerful way you can say we can link them even closer. So the only fiber use on the wall has really been uh, for other things, but if you think about the wall changing the topology of the entire world, so if you actually look at, say, look at South America and North America put together, or Africa next to India. So when you actually look at fiber and where things are going, it's absolutely staggering how different the way it is. So as an example, there was just recently a $270 million project to put fiber down the east coast of Africa. So East Africa now, every university that's there is profoundly connected to us. And so you're going, so it's not like 16 hours to get over there. It's half a second at the most to get there to actually interact. And when you text somebody, do you get an answer back in half a second? Can you get it you get longer? So you can actually look at it and going, how does what's taking place as we look at putting global infrastructure together? Actually, how could we really do something? And how do you get students to think about that? So now here's a picture of the wall that's one of the sections that will almost certainly be built. 
So as you look at it, um, so it's a published, it's a kind of a fence that's really hard to, uh, to jump over. It's got a whole bunch of really major railroad ties that stick way down in the ground, and that's the end of the story. Okay, look at it in a different way. Don't look at the wall, look at the road. The road is a right-of-way. A right-of-way is very much like a railroad. A railroad, when it actually goes, you have to go all the way in a railroad or a pipeline. So that's what a fence is, and if you actually look at this, that right-of-way could end up being of absolutely staggering importance to put, um, you could put fiber optics in it, you can put um, energy pipelines, um, the stakes, stakes that go down, would be extraordinary seismic sensors to make, just to make seismometers, so it's a, a looking as an early warning system for San Diego, Tijuana. Um, you could put temperature things in the wind, solar on the south side. The array of things, when you start to list it, people have come up with more than 100 things that functionally sensors, the internet of everything, or um, could be when you're actually looking at how could you make it a wireless wall, a, a wall that functionally is, is a blessing to both sides. And, and by students, by starting to look at that, they go, oh, the biggest thing that we could do is how do we increase the trade, the speed of trade? Because if any of you have been, say, at Mexicali or Takati, where you drive down the road parallel to the, you can go, the first transaction you have is maybe after an hour in line when you come up to the booth. And you're going, you were next to the wall for an hour. It's a dumb wall. So you can go, you can call it dumb wall, but you could say, put thousands of sensors in it. It absolutely would know who you are, where you're going, what you're doing, how you can do the trade. And, and so by having students think about that, it's really the thing that um, Alan Burson, who was, was the uh, 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 number two person in DHS, he had a concept called lines and flows. And even as a, a major lawyer um, in, in that context, he wrote a very powerful paper where a line would be a border and flows are things going across it. And so of doing that, what, what Mr. Burson uh, really proposed is this idea, and he has been wonderfully involved in the Homeland Security Program to say, how do you actually help make money for countries and for people and then do all of the other things as well? So it's just really business. If you switch this in a, in a major way, right now one of the major things that Homeland Security is really interested in is massive art and antiquities looting. This is actually now, it looks like, surpassed the, the value of global narcotics. Um, as, it's, as it's done that, uh, ISIS this last year, in just in easily documented things, has made more than $5 billion from um, Iraq and Syria uh, looting of those things. So what would you do with those things? How do, you do, how do you even begin to deal with that? So there's a whole host of ways that functionally what you're doing is just tracking something. You're understanding what you're tracking. You know what it is and how you do. We have almost no knowledge of this. There's almost no libraries of any of this. Um, that's actually one of the things that a person that, um, that spent a, a number of years at UCSD with the, um, a whole host of things that we did with him there is now at San Diego State. Um, Maurizio Saracini, who's also at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, Italy, he's the one that did the imaging through the Leonardo da Vinci paintings and saw the drawings underneath. Um, he, is, he got his undergraduate degree at UCSD and then doctorate in Europe. But as he's now doing, the kinds of things that you can do is to now look at art and antiquities has also surpassed global narcotics in terms of its value. And you're going, so that's exactly this. How do you even, how does a Border Patrol agent recognize a Monet? Is it worth $5 or $50 million? Why did Oprah Winfrey pay $165 million for that painting? Or, or I guess I got it wrong. She sold it for that. She only bought it for $80 million, I think. And hung on her wall for six years, and she made more money than all of, well, than most of us. Some of you have made that much money. So, so here is a uh, uh, last couple sort of a thoughts. 
Here's a group of people that we work with. Um, on the left are the senior police officers for the Kenya National Police. Uh, you can really tell Kenya came from the UK um, kind of training. They're very, very um, organized in an extraordinary way, very dedicated to trying to figure out really hard problems. And then the person on the right who is the new president of Somalia, he's also a US citizen. Um, he was a uh, person from Washington and, and New York. Um, but as, as they're doing, what do you think for those two countries, Kenya and uh, Somalia, would be the major thing that those two people, that groups of people are working on? And, and what it is is what's down on the left, drought. What they're interested in is right now the UN has said that 1.4 million people, 1.4 million children are in danger of dying right now. 22 million are in danger of dying before the end of the year. And so when you actually look at that, you can say, well, what could you do? Well, the group down in the bottom, AWARE, uh, one of our friends, uh, John Corbett, um, with 7 billion pieces of data a day. So visually, like Tom was saying, visually taking that much information, putting it on a map and saying, a year and a half ago, they said this may be the worst drought and famine Africa has ever had. What do you think people did? Right, and now we are paying the price. And so now he can also look at where are the places that people should go? What should we do? Um, and if we can train students to look forward by looking backward, so the trajectory of the, what's going forward, you can really see by the pattern of the past. So last couple of things, when you think of of if you were in the position that there's no water, there's no food, what are you gonna do? Are, especially if you have a family. And so the majority of people in that area are leaving. And, and you're going, so what options do they have? And as they leave, uh, we sort of think about them as refugees, but they're, they're leaving to go to somewhere. And we had a State Department group from, from, uh, from Europe um, as advisors to the presidents of 10 different countries. And, and one of the things that they pointed out is, they thought they had problems this year with all the things with Syria and things. Now they have this huge group of people coming out of East Africa that have to leave because you know, they're, they're going to die otherwise. So as they're leaving, one of the things that they now have that Google has really pursued is nearly every one of them has a cell phone. So now thinking, how do you now interact with people, with technology, with a cell phone? How do you help them in that way to really resolve something? So as an example, over on the right side, we have uh, two uh, of our adjunct faculty members, one from Rwanda, one from Congo, who are, who are actually now building a, um, an app for the cell phone that, that in a very powerful way, the cell phone actually knows where it is. I would hold it up, but I, but I don't have it right now. But it, hold, it knows where it is. So it knows where you are. So it knows that you're here, or you left it at home and your whole life's messed up. But, but, but your, your phone knows where it is. You can say, here's where DMV is, here's where health, medical, and it knows what the public transportation to get there. And you can actually also talk, it will actually also talk to you in your language and in English. So a lot of the people, especially women that come here, actually don't read or write especially English, and saying going, the phone can actually become something that's incredibly powerful as a way that integrates um, uh, refugees and people in a, in a profound way, including a major part of East Africa, is 40% of the gross national product of, of those countries is now moved by the cell phone with things like M-Pesa. Many of them are way better at cell phones than we are, especially with money. So last couple of things have seen the same idea. If you think of a truck, 
On a truck, we have a whole bunch of devices, things over the freeway that we see, that we monitor it, we see where it's going, that, that functionally you're just crowdsourcing um, huge amounts of data. You can crowdsource that data now with uh, uh, very much like Qualcomm started with Omnitracks. They're now looking at the cell phone as a piece of technology that could be extraordinary around the world to actually help. And if you can help students actually see that, so what they're actually looking at is, is uh, a process starting someplace how do you get to someplace cross the border? Um, that you can look at that. Every truck you pass is doing that. You're doing that as you, um, as you have your cell phone on, as you're driving on the freeway. It's then broadcasting how long it's taking, and that's where the speeds come from that you can see on your iPhone. So you're looking at it going, so we use it for all sorts of things. How could you actually use it for, last slide, how could you actually use it for actually looking at the border? And, and looking at the physical entity as the Internet of Things, the Internet of the truck, the trailer, the cargo, and, and then the electronic manifest of what's crossing, how the fees are being paid, link the two together, make a scheduling system instead of going to the airport and just, I need a, I need a plane to Cincinnati. And you're going, uh, how do we get that together? So, so the border profoundly could be something that we can, and as we're training people, our students and teaching them in, in um, homeland security, much of what we're doing is, is really comes down to where's Waldo? How do you find a pattern in a whole bunch of nonsense and that from that, that's what your goal is? And, and so by helping students look at massive amounts of data, find the right pattern, and then have a narrative for how they could do a solution. Um, that's what we're trying to do, and, and we do it enormously with UCSD, with CalIT2. Um, and with um, schools all around the world, including uh, Kenya, Somalia, because the director of counterpiracy, counterterrorism is, is my adjunct faculty and, and graduate, you, you, there's a special expectation, too, of how can you help. And what they're asking is, the people are dying. What do we do? And you're going, oh, so, I'm sorry. You're going, well, actually, all of the water is mapped. They don't know about it, but it was mapped by NGOs. And how do you show where it is? How do you get there? But now, the, and the last point, the really hard part is already this year, the first three months, there have been 18,000 cases of cholera in Somalia. Um, one in 45 of the people that, get, that gets it dies because of the strain. Um, so the expectation of where this is going, there will be more people die in cholera than ever before in history. And it's because they're drinking water that's really poor water that a nickel could save them from what's going on. And so as we have students that are trying to go help in a whole variety of ways, the point is, how can you actually go use innovative things of using technology, even very simple technology, and then the ethics comes in very much that technology actually really can help in a profound way and, and in a much more sophisticated way by just asking bigger questions. So thank you for the privilege of talking. My name is Kevin Swanson with Centropic Systems, and I'm actually starting a book on the Centropic Cycle, which is the idea that you can talk to people until they're blue in the face, but at some point in time you say something that triggers them understanding the patterns around them on a self-learning cycle. So my question to you, Eric, is, and we've known each other for several years in various forms, uh, what are you using within your programs in terms of the educational aspect to help 
increase the ability for people to reach that centropic cycle of self-learning and recognizing patterns more quickly. Thanks, Kevin. It's really nice to see you. We've had a, a very nice uh, friendship for a long time. The, that's, a, that's a very powerful way of saying it, that when, when people see a pattern and they recognize that it is a pattern and then that they can do something with it, um, they, they often don't just figure it out themselves. And, and so the, the mentorship side of where they, they actually come in and they just see people doing things and they go, I could do that. Or just getting people involved in, in exercises. So we have one coming up in two weeks that's mimicking a major earthquake in San Diego, Tijuana. Um, and, and as you look at that, the, um, the I don't know what's going on to, oh, I see how people do this, and, and I can see where I can put new things in, and then by helping them say, and, and you need to write a paper about it, but you, you, need, you, need, you need to have a product that you're explaining why you're, so maybe by articulating the question. And, and so by me saying to my, my students, I want you to go help save people in East Africa, and here's a whole bunch. I mean, there's people are kind of going, this is a really hard, and they're going, it's a really easy problem because, and if sort of what you're, but you see the pattern of how you save people. And then I share some of the, this is how we didn't save people in Haiti for, for why cholera was such a disaster there. And, and as people walk through it, they, they indeed start to see that the past, that's a very powerful way of saying it, the past really does give you an indication of what you can do, but, but only if you're looking at it. And that's really one of the places where technology right now can just absolutely extraordinarily assist, where your learning is way faster than what we would have traditionally thought. Uh, I don't have to tell you what a throbbing brain Larry Smarr is, but I, I want to ask you to remind him about something. <clears throat> I think it was about 15 years ago when the fire went through Scripps Ranch. I, uh, anyway, there was a big fire. Uh, Larry Smarr and I talked to Ron Roberts about his idea, which was he had had some people show that with you could place 60 infrared sensors at mountaintops throughout the county that would be able to cover the entire county and detect any fire before it reached about a cubic meter. And the idea was is that since you'd also know exactly where it was, you could put a high-flying airplane that would just dump fire suppressant at night, and the idea is snuff the thing out before it becomes a big problem. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the case. And, uh... Anyway, I think, I think that idea, you know, what, what you're saying about the fuel loading is this, this could be a horrific year, either this fall or next fall. And, you know, they ought to do something smart for a change instead of spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on the uh, firefighting. Yeah, I, I, the, the group of things that Larry and the, the, the really powerful insight of uh, Hans Werner Braun, who who was off um, from UCSD for a while and is now just back um, with, from health problems. Absolutely remarkable um, context of on top of the, all the different mountains, the cameras, the fixed cameras there, we can now do something far, far more powerful in, in a very simple way that couldn't be done then is that you can actually look at every pixel in that camera um, because they're fixed cameras. Um, but you can, since they're, they can be moved in some of them as well, you can look at f for what it can see. But you can actually get the, you can figure out the GPS of every pixel in the camera. And so as you're looking at, it, as you're looking at what's out there, you can see exactly where it is. And then as you triangulate, um, it, it is absolutely extraordinarily powerful to do that. And so the response 
you fit functionally almost using um, artificial intelligence. You're just looking at it, you're locating it, here's where it is, here's what the time is, and, and then you can also see, um, oftentimes, you, you can detect the fire even before there's flames or smoke because you see the volatiles actually coming up out of it. So as, as you're doing that, what, what you could do in a smart way um, is, is absolutely extraordinary. And then also another very powerful pattern that we see, like you know when you are, are coming here or going from here of looking at the traffic that's going by, so the same kind of idea. So you know what the traffic is doing, um, you know, going one way or going the other way, what time of day, what it's doing on Saturday and Sunday versus... So you know that pattern. Weather is an even simpler pattern and for the most part. You can say in San Diego region, the, the change of wind in the afternoon where the fire is racing and then you change... That's where it really goes. Everything goes wrong because now you have a huge fire front that you have now changed to an even bigger fire front. And, and by getting things done when they're, when they're very small, you can say it's really using intelligence and, and the rapidity of which you can do things and then figure out how you can get there, where you can get the pieces that you absolutely could do far, far greater than, like Tom was saying, with the dispatcher in, in that fire, unfortunately, had a game to go to. So the fire didn't get, they didn't respond to it and, and, for, have for, and were forever, you know, is on their conscious of what. But, but you can go, we actually can do far, far greater things. And, and right now, social media is even better in some ways that there are thousands of things. If you had a fire in front of your house, would you go take a picture of it? Especially if she said, put San Diego Fire as the hashtag, what do we use? So there's, there's an enormous amount that we could do that. But we have to have a policy that the Emergency Operations Center and others actually use those things. Um, they use it to broadcast, but to use it is a much more difficult understanding of, of things. And, and we actually don't do that here. So the, absolutely, there are ways that we could, um, and, and in a sense, looking at the pattern, as, as Kevin was saying, you could find ways to dramatically make us safer. And in lots of other countries, then you can ship off that intellectual property and sell it for other things. One of the proposals that we made uh, to our local representatives back in the days when there were still earmarks being made by uh, uh, Congress people, uh, shortly after the 2007 fire, was a grid of um, sensors set on one kilometer apart. Uh, by which we could not only detect fires shortly after they erupted, but also predict their motions because you'd be uh, uh, picking up wind speed and, and, um, and heat levels and that sort of thing. Um, it didn't go anywhere. It was considered to be a secondary uh, um, necessity of the area, and now, it was rejected. Yeah. Now, San Diego Gas and Electric has the densest weather network because that's part of their uh, payment for this, starting the fire for... Um, but as, as that, there's more than 200 weather stations. They go on the HP-REN network and then are publicly made available. So there's a staggering information. And, and you can say, well, it's for fire. But another way you can say it's for fire, so it's monitoring three-dimensional wind. So you can say, oh, it's actually what it's doing is it's measuring the wind asset for where is the most beneficial place to put wind energy. So you're going, oh, so that map is actually worth a whole lot of money. Really, a whole lot of money because it's actually being mapped through time of where it is. And then you can map it through time and say that's where the danger is. And when we look at this, one of the hard things about it is map fire is now being used as an offensive weapon. So if you wanted to say move a load of, move a load of drugs across the border, one of the things that you could do is move the border patrol out of the way when the wind is blowing the right way, you start a fire. And then the border patrol is not going to die 
staying on some of those roads, so they're leaving. And so you can go, so fires or other ones that have been in the San Diego area, there was one where we had 12 fires, and that same day there were a whole series of bank robberies. And then you're going, oh, the fire was the diversion. The robbery was the point. And so it now becomes this very common thing of, bad guys are really good at this, and fire works really well here, so start the fire, and, and everybody's over trying to save that, so we're doing this. Um, and, and so that's something to train of like the, the first bomb and then the secondary bomb is most things set very much that mindset. So fire now is absolutely a weapon as it's being used in, um, in Africa and in the Middle East, where although it's, it's no uh, chemical weapons, they're now for really bad news. David. Oh, good evening. My name is David Edick of the San Diego World Affairs Council. Some organizations and institutions are more capable than others in seeing over the horizon or looking around the corner. They're paid to do that. Uh, what's your experience with the, the U.S. military in terms of disaster response? Uh, how are they uh, making use of these new tools, technology, and data? And with their unique logistical capabilities, how's that relationship going? That's a really good question, David. We, because we're um, a Navy Marine Corps town, much more so than we, we don't have a lot of Air Force Army folks here. I was in the Army, so that I, I was in the Army. Uh, um, I was in the Corps of Engineers, so I, I built bridges and then I blew them up. I was actually much better at blowing them up than I was at building them because uh, I was a mining engineer and I had a lot of experience with explosives. Uh, but um, we have we have found an absolutely extraordinary partnership with the, with the Marines at Camp Pendleton, the first Marine Expeditionary Force. We have an educational partnership agreement with them um, to try to look at, um, and for them, um, they would be the ones that would likely be deployed in a humanitarian assistance disaster relief mission. And, and they have, um, for almost a year, they sent a group of people down every other week to spend time in the Viz Center to learn a whole series of these open source tools so, so open street map, field papers, walking papers. How, how do people actually go into a disaster and, and understand what's there, where it's not data that's coming from, from government kinds of, because most of that data really is, is inappropriate for answering what's there. And so we have found that the Marines, maybe because they don't have any money and everything's done with courage, <laughs> they, they have been way out in front of... Another group that's incredibly good at this is Northcom, um, the, especially the mapping people, the Sage group at Northcom, um, absolutely staggeringly good um, as <coughs> people that are way out in the front of trying to figure out how do we know when there's a disaster, who do we alert, how do we do these things, how do we do the collaboration, how do we go to Mexico to help with. So, so there are <coughs> there are real highlights, and yet in other groups there are there are groups that you just go. Um, their whole point is we're going to put out a press release about Ebola in, in Liberia. And he's going, so AFRICOM was absolute complete antithesis of other groups that were there. Um, I think I was telling Tom, the group that was the heroes in, in was uh, Franklin Graham's uh, Samaritan's Purse. They, they were the first group there with a 747 full of supplies. Every pallet that came off, they had a picture on it. Uh, a hand-drawn picture and the numbers. They took a picture of it with a plane in the background and they tweeted it out. So this complete transparency that what people paid for got there. And then they took the picture of the same pallet in the place that it was delivered. And so within days, every single thing that was there, you could see where it was and what it was done. AFRICOM, 
um, put out a press release on their webpage, and they forbid people to take pictures of the Ospreys that the U.S. sent. And you're going, so that would have been a huge positive, but you're going, they're not secret. And, 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 and so some parts of the U.S. military are, are absolutely abysmal at what they're doing because, I mean, it's sort of like the definition of diplomacy. They're, they're, they're not trying to collaborate. They're not trying to do things, and they've never thought about the using of some of the other tools. The Marines are on the other end of the scale. Um, hello, my name is Eduardo Solis. I come from Tijuana. Um, if I may change a little bit the topic, I mean, talking about the same, but a slightly different perspective. Uh, we've been talking about you know, data and visualization and Internet of Things. During your teachings or your, your way of um, mentoring these students on, on these type of technologies, uh, many of these potential applications could work for official purposes like, you know, expediting, as you mentioned, expediting a, a freight border crossing, right? How is the uh, protocols like ISO 27000, you know, for um, information systems security, how, how much is that involved in your, in your teachings and how is that being addressed for collaboration? Because, I mean, protocols for one end can make things difficult, but in the other way, it can facilitate things and collaboration. So uh, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, that's, that's a really, really good question. Um, uh, ISO 27000 and the whole series of, of protocols underneath that and, and ISO um, 31000 and the, the things that's information security, global supply chain security. Um, the, the person that actually wrote those is uh, uh, one of our adjunct faculty members, Mark Siegel. Um, Mark used to be the liaison between the U.S. and Israel and, and wrote a lot of the kinds of standards for both security, for supply chain security. Um, and in doing that, um, that was all done as uh, ASIS, which, which ASIS is now as the major security professional group in the world. They've gotten out of the teaching world completely. That's what Mark So now he's trying to, uh, to teach all of those classes because he was the teacher. So it's his intellectual property. He's trying to teach those classes through the Homeland Security Program in the Viz Center. And his perspective on he was just in a... Uh, um, a thesis defense yesterday for several hours um, that, that was about 27,000 uh, and, and how you actually can do that. And his perspective really is that the, that the standard um, actually needs real people to show real solutions, that the standard is really general. Um, most people don't actually really understand how they um, can get compliance and that there are, there are dramatic ways that, that you actually can show real solutions that fit really well. And since he's the architect of doing it, he, he, ne he wrote nearly all of the things. He's, he's really interested in using the border here as a way of saying, he, he just looks at it and goes, there's so much that we've done here that is so magnificent, and, and, and that's not in the narrative. And yet, just for OTI, they estimate that it's $4 billion a year in wait time that's lost. And you just go... So you could, we could make this a border of extraordinary opportunity, a wall of jobs, all sorts of things that it could be. And, and asking questions like that where, where that kind of compliance collaboration internationally, where Mexico is a point on this global supply chain coming from, from India, China, uh, Vietnam, Peru, Chile, um, and you're going, so how you put all that together could be dramatically improved by, by thinking how we could do this where, say, all of Tijuana or all of Baja became part of the wall, where the wall was a flat wall. 
um, and, and it's, we're, we're tracking, we're, we're enhancing, we're really make, bringing value to that. So that would be a really great, you know, sort of a, a compliance outline. But the details, Mark would really, I think, say that the, the real solutions, really showing what you could really do by practitioners, is, is dramatically more powerful than a practitioner trying to be compliant to the rule. It's, it's kind of written the other way around. So, so actually, people really doing it here can probably help you know, really articulate what the meaning of that compliance is. So I'd, I'd be really interested in following up with you on that because it's, it's an enormous opportunity. Um, and if, if some of our students can see that as well, they're going, whoa, being here on the border is outrageously the nicest place to live. Thank you. Uh, Jeffrey Kirsch, uh, this is... The things you've been saying about visualization and the impact it can have on people in terms of understanding what's going on. It <clears throat> problem that you know troubles me quite a bit is climate change and the the inability of people who understand that climate change is happening but can't make people feel what that or understand what that can mean to the future and to their future and their family's future. And I wonder if this is something where your approach on visualizing, like the first time I saw the crack in the ice in Antarctica, uh, I was really in a, in a newspaper and said, my God, that's huge. But if there's some way you can bring that home to, that is not huge. That is catastrophically large. That in itself is, is something to be really concerned about and convince people long-term problem needs long-term solutions. Um, so is this anything that you see as fitting in as your yeah, one project? Of, yeah, one of the, that's, that's a really good point. One of the things that is now possible to do that was never, ever possible to do before, um, and some of you may use this, there's a, there's a web, website called earth.nullschool.net. Does anybody use that? Um, all right, I'll say it, say it again. It's just the word earth and then null, N-U-L-L, school, all one word, dot net. Um, that, that puts on a, a global um, visualization of the winds that are no more than three hours out of real time for the entire world. And so when there's a, when there's a hurricane or a typhoon anywhere, that is by far the single best thing that is used to, to depict where it's going. It also has a thing that does currents, which is sea surface temperature is one, and then the spin patterns, so that like if there was a Malaysia airline plane that goes in the water again, you can actually probably see where you might want to go look. Um, but but the, if you, there's one that says chemistry, which is really pollution in, in a way. When you actually look at that and then match with also with the, what the air is going, where it's going, it is absolutely stunning to see what's going on in the world. And you could look at different places like sometimes the New York, New Jersey area is often the, you know, slams out in the U.S. It's, it's usually not L.A., but for our, around here, L.A., is, and then we see the things go down all the way to the way down Baja. But, but the thing that you then look at is go over to China. China will knock your socks off. It's like the entire country almost. So, so it is so far past anything that we can even imagine. And then when you actually look at that and see where the wind is going, so the wind is going down to Vietnam and Thailand. So Thailand has had the, the single worst air quality that they have ever experienced. And you're going, that's because you're just blowing all that down, and, and that becomes important. Say, if there was a person that had a nuclear weapon that was interested in throwing it via missile over to Japan, 
or to Korea. You can say one thing that you probably wouldn't want to have is the winds blowing back at you so that the radiation came back. That would be if you were thinking rationally. But, but if, you were, if, you, if the radiation came back so the wind flips back and forth between North Korea and the other places. And so people look at that every day of going, what's going on? And the pollution actually ends up being a tracer. But that tracer from China is absolutely staggering. Um, for, for what would take place. And when you look at it, for most people that look at that, they go, I had no idea the things that, that, that it was this much. So making an animation of that, and you look at it, um, it, it is absolutely, indeed, absolutely profoundly staggering. And, and then if you put the public health problems that go along with that, as well as other things that, like the, the fires, the, the climate change, the drought, um, all that collection of things, things change in a lot of different ways that, in one sense, climate change is almost a... The simplicity of a word that we can't even get our hands around how this enormity of, of what's taking place is taking place. We now measure about 200 onion skin layers of the atmosphere um, from the National Center for, um, from in, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and um, as, as those are processed, John Graham at UCSD now, uh, working in Larry's lab, was the first one to really process And you just look at it and you're going, Oh my God! I had no idea. So mostly, we have, most scientists have no idea of the extent of how where this goes. Maybe one last one. If you happen to go look at that web page, but it, it's a if you if you go to earth.nullschool.net on on air, one of the the winds is surface. But over on the side, there's a number that says 250. 250 are the jet streams. And so when you look at the jet stream, when we had this river of water coming towards, when we had all the rains up, that, that's when the jet stream is just firing directly into uh, western uh, U.S. So when it's doing that, you can go, oh, my goodness, I now see why what's going on. And, and that's also nearly, um, uh, that's less than three hours out of real time. So you actually can look at it. We actually can now visualize things. We have no idea what was going on. And then it's really neat to flip the earth over on the North Pole, the South Pole, and, kind of thing. and amazingly, the wind spins around the world. Who would have thought? Um, so when you actually look at it, that becomes a way that we now have information that now, and very much like Tom Sawyer painting white fences, now other people are doing it. So you help somebody see the idea, and, and then the data are now freely available from a huge array of satellites that anybody can look at to do all sorts of different kinds of things with. And um, so we, we use that an enormous amount, and then just showing people how um, things like um, the, the sense of what's going on on the Earth, the, the enormous array of different interrelated, and then when you put the oceans into it and the spin patterns, maybe one last one. Um, has anybody been to Yemen recently? <laughs> okay, the, the Yemen is, people said that Yemen after five months of the war with Saudi Arabia was worse than Syria after five years. So, so Yemen is a complete disaster with no food, no water, being destroyed. And so everybody in Yemen wants to get out sort of the same way. And the way, the simplest way they can get out, they can't go north to Saudi Arabia for some reason. So they're going south to, to Somalia as a destination country, interestingly now. They have to cross the water. And, and because the, the Indian Ocean, the currents are going straight west, they hit, the Indian, they hit Africa, and then they have to spin. I mean, sort of imagine, shoot your water hose at your wall this, this weekend. And, and it won't go into your house, hopefully, because your window isn't open. But you shoot it at the wall, and then the, wall, then the water has to go sideways. And so the, the water is spinning sideways. As it spins up between Yemen and, and Somalia, it makes these little spin patterns. So depending on where you took off from Yemen, you're either going into the current or with the current. If you're going into the current, you're actually probably not going to get to Somalia. 
you're, you're not probably going to get to anywhere. And last year, um, they, for the first time in 63 years, they had a hurricane. Um, how many people in Yemen do you think were alive 63 years ago and cognizant of that? So here comes a hurricane. They didn't see it on the news because they didn't have news. So they get out in the water. Um, thousands uh, died. And the incredible thing happened. Two weeks later, another hurricane hit. In, in no one has ever heard of that in that part of the world. And, and so a whole bunch more people died. And so we don't even hear about that over here, but, but all of the different people that, when you look at that, you're going, here's where they should go, here's where you could go find people, here's where you could go help people, here's, where you, here's how you could go through all of these spin patterns to get the, the least carbon footprint. So not the shortest distance, but the least carbon footprint. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of things that you can do with this by just helping people to see, oh, here's how we do. It's like we do. How many of you drive from home to work or to where you're going in the shortest distance? You don't. You take roads, which is the least time. And you often don't take the straight road. You take the least time road. What if we just make it least carbon footprint or least all sorts of things other than the common way that we think about it? And so we have a whole series of people thinking about how do I actually do that? And, and, and those kinds of things help students go, oh, there's actually a whole world that we could do because now we have data that we nobody had before and it's free, but largely only a few people use it. So um, it's been really a very fascinating tour through technology, information systems, um, fiber optics, the weather, fires. Since I live in Scripps Ranch, I evacuated twice. Um, but... This is a talk about ethics, at least what it says up there. So I'd like you to address the ethical issues, as you see them, of all of this information that's out there. We've heard something about how people might or might not use it. There have been a little, more than a little bit of finger-pointing. But nevertheless, in terms of the ethical issues that you see to all of this, maybe you could address one or two or three of the big ones. Sure, that's a that's a very good question, and I, some of those things I um, I was going to put in there as I was going along, but I, I get so carried away in what I'm thinking about that I, uh, ethics end up being a, a very a very big part of in a field of homeland security. One of the most prized components that really matters is is integrity, and it's usually called a trust network. So the way that you, you interact with people, because oftentimes you're doing things that, that really matter a lot, you actually have to trust people in, in a whole host. So if I give somebody information, they actually are really trusting that that information really has the integrity of what it means and what I'm suggesting they should go do, because they'll certainly come back to me if I said the wrong thing. That's also a powerful way for students to learn that disasters have consequences and they also have ways that you can see did I do that or did I not do it and almost always the answer of of not having an answer is the wrong answer uh, Mark Zuckerberg one time made a statement that the only that that, um, that risk is just a part of life in a way and the the um, the component of not making a decision is that the risk is absolute there and and saying going so the the integr the the ethics of many of the things a major part of, of what's there is if you, if you actually help students see, um, here, here is where data um, really are appropriately located, what you can do with it. The data oftentimes are so much more overwhelming 
than say somebody in government has any idea what to do with. So they're just so they're so blown away. For the most part, you're going. They're so far behind on so many different kinds of things. There is no way that they have the right information to make the right decision because they just don't have anywhere near the. And, and it's because they don't know where to go get it, how to go get it. And for some things, some groups don't go get it because they're not supposed to go get it. Um, so they're not supposed to look at U.S. citizens. So thankfully, don't go look at U.S. citizens because you're not supposed to. But so when you when you actually look at data and from an ethics standpoint and 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 of saying it it, it really comes down to um, a a very much of an understanding of um, oftentimes what you would say of values and morals. Um, it, it isn't a um, something you can say just because we're in the U.S. we have a right to do anything around, in, in, with anybody around. So you can go. So the the ethics of what's there if you. Um, are working with people in other countries. Their ethics change because now they're collaborating. They're, they're working with somebody, and it's now a shared ethics for what's doing. It's not us versus Europe or us versus um, Africa. or people. So one of the things that we have really found is each one of these things, because you are working with somebody, the, the ethics of its massive open transparency of what's there. And so since that, it, people really see what is the decision that you're making and that you made. And then from that, you can say, um, oh, I, it, I, was, I wasn't really trying to do that. You're going, dude, like you, look what you did. And, and that there is some, functionally a cyber track of all of these things. So cybersecurity in many ways is a wonderful ethics thing because there's a record of what was actually being done. And, and there's a record of when people do inappropriate things. So as, as an example, um, um, in a, in a whole variety of places, uh, people have uh, pushed a button to go into pornography. And you're going, and, and you don't think that somebody is tracking that? And he's like, so that was really tra-. So you're going, you have just done something that you look at it and say in the military, that's, that's caused to get thrown out. And, and in a lot of other worlds, it's, you're going, you have just done something where it was, say, attractive in your eyes to go do something. You have done something that, especially if it's child pornography, which we really battle in that world and with some of our students, you just go, the, the character of, of how that is wrapped up into somebody who just, you are the mouse in the mousetrap. And, and, and you have been caught, and so the cyber aspect of a whole bunch of things now are, are just overwhelmingly um, now coming to... The veil is being lifted from lots of people's eyes and lives as, as what's there is now, except maybe as a simple example of that. Um, there was a small company called Silence, not like Silence, but CY, like cyber, and then Lance, like a. So it's Silence, um, they were giving a, um, a sales pitch to a small group called OPM. And OPM said, yeah, we'll let you on our network to show how this thing works. And they let them on the network, and the guys, you know, a salesperson selling a software product. He looks at it and he goes, dude, like, he didn't say it because he's not from San Diego, dude, like, uh, you guys have been hacked by China. Oh. And, and they're going, <laughs> so several months later it came out that first it was 14 million, now it's 22.5 million, found in a sales talk by this company, um, and now one of the person that was in charge of cyber for, uh, for Dell Computers is now one of the leaders of that. He just gave a talk to this uh, FBI InfraGuard here. Um, extraordinary to then see that um, 22.5 million, 780 data fields in each person's thing that was there. Um, and you're going, oh, that man, don't watch your credit card. And you're going, does it matter to the Chinese 
what your credit card is. They already own the world in many ways anyway. But look at now they know who all these people are, who the linkage is, who the family is, who all the, I mean, so they now have this artificial intelligent network they can put together and then put it together with things like Ashley Madison. And you're going, now we've got real power. And, and you start to put those pieces together and the ethics of this massive array of data sets that are there. Um, and then the things like adware that all of us are subject to um, when you go, like on CNN, the, the little ads over on the right of, you know, crocodile eats um, fire hydrant or something. That you, you click, oh, that sounds really neat. Boom. You are being tracked by, you know, maybe a dozen different people that are now tracking you for what's going on. So your data are now being sold, and now that will be possible with the new law, maybe. Um, but but the, the, immense, the, the ethics part of much of this is that the enormity of the data that's there, there is a record of it. There is a transparency that's there. And that there is, and, and it comes down to the values of, of, you could say, right and wrong, people's worldview. People have very, very different views on that. We have a lot of international students, and it, it's remarkable when people look at, oh, I totally don't believe that. And you're going, note to self. This is a different world. But, but as it's going, and we see a profound difference of millennial uh, folks are far more often um, comfortable of having their data spread out everywhere, of knowing people knowing what kind of thing they get at Starbucks and what's, you know, this whole array of different things, like what kind of books I buy at Amazon, what's on my wish list for this, versus I'm, I'm very reticent to have people know about a lot of the things that, um, um, because... The, the kind, when I'm, say, when I'm looking at Somalia, a lot of what I'm looking at is, is probably not very beneficial to, because I'm looking at where people are dying. And that's probably not a really good thing to share with people. And it, it, I mean, it's a really discouraging thing. Or when we look at, we do a lot of counter-human trafficking. That's a really discouraging thing. Um, and, and in terms of doing that, that's then taking massive amounts of data, putting patterns together, looking at where things are at, and then technology, the cell phone, is the single biggest boon to human trafficking there is because now you sell the girl or the little boy, you sell them not walking up and down the street. Now it's here's Snapchat, here's the picture on 5th and G or in front of the Motel 6, and now you send it out to the clients. And so it's just skyrocketed, including with gangs. And so technology related to human trafficking and so we are very deeply involved in. And you just look at it and going, it's ugly beyond ugly because it's real lives. I was one last point. I was I was at a um, one of the times that had the greatest impact on me as just a was with a safe house of, of uh, young girls that um, were survivors out of counter human uh, out of human trafficking. The oldest one was 14. Most of them had been trafficked when they were six or seven. All of them had been raped thousands of times. Mm-hmm. They were all just little girls, and, and they were sitting and chatting and talking, and I was just going, I can't even get my, because I have a daughter, I can't even get my mind around this. And then how do you help in terms of what's in their mind, what's in their life? They're all ho- totally hidden away, because if they were recognized, they would be dead. Um, so, so when students get involved in that, we have about a dozen students involved in that effort right now, you're going, that changes, and then the ethics absolutely comes you know, flat in their face because they're looking at really hard problems. And then they also look in the government, and they're going, very little response of hardly anything that's there. So the ethics inside the government, it's just too big to, to care. So that's maybe a longer. Let us thank Eric for a very thoughtful uh, presentation and discussion. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.